one of the highest stakes history lessons of the year played out in a Denver courtroom earlier this fall. At this time, petitioners moved to admit Professor Magliocca as an expert in the history of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, known as the Disqualification Clause, ratified in 1868 after the Civil War. Basically, there were elections held throughout the South after the war ended, and many of the same people who had been in office before the war and had left to join the Confederacy were returned to office as if nothing had happened. So Congress put in a section in the 14th Amendment that bans anyone who has taken an oath to protect the U.S. Constitution and then engaged in an insurrection from holding office again. They wanted to keep officials who had left to join the Confederacy from returning to office unless they showed that they deserved a second chance. The clause has mostly been gathering dust since the days of Reconstruction, until recently. It hasn't been successfully prosecuted in more than 100 years. But now, starting in Colorado, it could potentially reshape the entire 2024 presidential landscape. President Trump was not just a part of the insurrection on January 6th, he was the leader of the insurrection. He summoned the mob. He created a false and desperate expectation in his supporters that the only way by January 6th they could overturn the results of what they thought were a stolen election was through force and violence. Colorado is ground zero for a fight over whether that rarely used section of the Constitution will keep former President Trump from appearing on voters' ballots next year. He has violated his oath. He engaged in insurrection. Absolutely nothing that President Trump said prior to January 6th would constitute incitement. A Colorado judge will decide whether the former president is an insurrectionist or a politician expressing his views within the bounds of the First Amendment. But this isn't a case that will stop here in Colorado. It has the potential to set a precedent for the entire nation and alter politics for years to come. This is Purplish, a podcast about Colorado politics and policy. And for this episode, the lawsuit seeking to ban former President Donald Trump from Colorado's ballot. I'm Benta Berkland, and joining me as a special guest for this episode of Purplish, Nick Coltrane from the Denver Post. Nick, thank you so much for being here with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Nick and I both sat in the courtroom while this case was being argued, and we're here to break down the lawsuit, why it matters, and the interesting legal questions it poses, and of course, what it means for politics. A quick note, at the time we're recording this, the judge has not yet issued her decision, but it is expected soon. Colorado's always occupied this like odd space in the 2020 election. I'm, I'm thinking of like the Tina Peters case, for example. But even so, it was fascinating to see a case of potentially national magnitude like this just be brought at the Denver City Courthouse. And this case really centers on two key questions. Did the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol rise to the level of an insurrection? If it did, 
Did Trump's involvement amount to engaging in the insurrection or aiding or giving comfort to those who did? And it gets at that question in kind of a novel way. The lawsuit was brought by a handful of unaffiliated and Republican voters. In full disclosure, that includes conservative columnist for the Denver Post, Krista Kafer, uh, who doesn't have any say in editorial decision making. But those voters are working together with a liberal watchdog group, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. Uh, in essence, they're arguing that the 14th Amendment would disqualify Trump. And if he's allowed to remain on the ballot, that would rob them of being able to support their preferred candidates. And one reason this lawsuit had to come from Republican and unaffiliated voters is that to have standing, you have to be a voter who can participate in the Republican primary. And we're noting, I think, that Trump's lead attorney has a lot of experience with this type of law. He's a former Colorado Secretary of State, Republican Scott Gessler. And while Colorado is at the forefront of this particular challenge, there are similar challenges working their way through other states, all with the goal of setting a national precedent that would essentially keep the Republican frontrunner from being able to run at all. Let's start with the section of the Constitution that's really at the heart of this lawsuit, the so-called Disqualification Clause. It sort of had this second life in the recent years after the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Yeah, it's really moved from almost a line of trivia in the Constitution to being central to several lawsuits against sitting members of Congress. Unsuccessful lawsuits, but lawsuits nonetheless challenging the eligibility of Congressman Paul Gosar, former Congressman Madison Cawthorn, and Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. All of those lawsuits argued that their support to overturn the 2020 election amounted to insurrection. But there has been one success for supporters of this tactic, and that was last year, a New Mexico court removed a county commissioner from office for participating in the January 6th riot. And that victory proponents of this strategy say really helped this whole idea get broader traction. Opponents of the former president have really been looking at any legal strategy they can to try and keep him from running again. And yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That put a point to this nebulous 14th Amendment challenge. What I think is really tricky about this, though, is that the Constitution doesn't explicitly define insurrection. And because it hasn't been used much, courts don't have a lot of precedent to look at. So in a lot of ways, this judge in Denver is really in uncharted territory. Indeed. And it's important to remember that there's been no charge, much less conviction of insurrection for the former president. He also hasn't been convicted of any of the other charges that surrounding the 2020 election. And when I mentioned that New Mexico county commissioner, that person had been convicted in federal court. That's something we hear from Trump supporters. Like, look, Trump hasn't been convicted of anything. One thing I found that was fascinating in court is kind of starting off with this history, since a lot of people aren't familiar with this 14th Amendment. I know I wasn't until I started covering this. The plaintiffs brought in a legal scholar who just did like a book's worth of research on how courts have defined insurrection throughout American history. And every instance he could find of the disqualification clause being invoked. Yeah. And if I recall, he said that the events of January 6th, that was kind of what spurred his interest in the topic. And yeah, him looking back as far as, you know, contemporary dictionaries of the time, the 
amendment was drafted back to events that were happening a quarter millennium ago for a modern court case that centers around tweets is kind of something to behold. This legal scholar, law professor Gerard Magliaca from Indiana University actually had to go way back, even before the 14th Amendment, to find examples other than the Civil War that people agree were insurrections. There were two notable insurrections early on in American history. Uh, One was the Whiskey Insurrection, which is also known as the Whiskey Rebellion. And that happened in 1794 in Pennsylvania. Uh, It was a tax protest by uh, farmers who were angry at a new federal tax on distilleries that had been put in as part of Alexander Hamilton's financial scheme for the federal government. I never would have guessed that a single paragraph in my U.S. history textbook from high school would rear its head again for a court case that I was covering professionally. As a politics reporter at the Colorado State House, <laughs> you, know, you expect to be sitting in a committee hearing, listening to bills. But this historic background is, is really grounding for this lawsuit. And the plaintiffs try to do their best to convince this judge that January 6th was, in fact, also an insurrection somewhere between the Whiskey Rebellion and the Civil War. And to do that, they've introduced a lot of evidence that first surfaced as part of the January 6th Select Committee's final report on the events of that day, bringing up a lot of body cam footage and videos and tweets and things of that nature to really emphasize for the court what happened that day. President Trump summoned the mob, assembled the mob, and lit the flame of this attack. We have a breach of the Capitol! Breach of the Capitol! What I saw was just a a war scene. It it was something like I had seen out of the movies. And what seemed like a sea of people, Capitol Police officers and Metropolitan Police officers, MPD, were engaged in desperate hand-to-hand fighting with rioters across the West Lawn. As an outside observer, I feel like of all the things the plaintiffs have to prove to try to make this case, showing that what happened on January 6th was an insurrection, I think they have an easier time showing that than some of the other claims. Because during their evidence, we saw violence. We heard firsthand testimony of physical injuries. We know people died that day. And I think they showed a lot in that part of the hearing. And I didn't hear the judge really question whether or not it could be an insurrection. Yeah, a lot of the body camera footage, it's a first-person perspective of these law enforcement officers as they're trying to push back this riotous mob that was pushing its way into the Capitol. And it was interesting, too, watching the former president's attorneys come back because they were trying to be very specific. They weren't trying to disparage uh, the cops that were there that day, but they were trying to emphasize that they only provided a small window into what was happening of an event that involved thousands of people. Yeah, I think just this idea that, look, your view of that day was limited from your personal perspective. And we heard different perspectives, certainly from Trump's side when they called witnesses. They brought in supporters of the former president who were there for the rally before the storming of the Capitol. And they said, look, they were not being urged to violence. And they said they didn't see people around them responding to Trump's speech at the Ellipse with violence. I mean, people were happy. The president was there. They came there to see their um, president. Many people had never been to Washington, D.C., so it was like a highlight of their life. That was Amy Kramer. She founded Women for America First, one of the groups that planned and organized the January 6th rally at the Ellipse. 
After the rally, she went back to her hotel room and just saw the events on TV. But she describes the beginning of the day and the Stop the Steal rally from her perspective is just going great and very similar to other pro-Trump rallies in Washington, D.C. Very uplifting, patriotic, and just full of love. I mean, happy people dancing and just waiting to see their president. Lawyers for the former president, they also called Congressman Ken Buck literally the day after he announced his retirement. And in a statement announcing that retirement, he slammed what he described as election denialism that had really taken over the party. So seeing what he had to say on the stand really was an open question for me. I think Buck was a surprise witness for a lot of people because he has been so strong in opposing the stolen election lie. He was really there to testify to the January 6th Select Commission and the findings of that group. Even though it was a bipartisan commission, he said he doesn't think it was fair or balanced or it showed both sides of the argument. He didn't think Trump's perspective was fairly captured in the commission's findings. You know, in in my experience as a prosecutor, if a defense attorney isn't present and the defendant isn't present, it's not a real fair trial. And in this case, you need to have both sides, you need to have the adversarial system uh, working in order to get accurate and full, complete information for an issue like the January 6th uh, investigation. He didn't think Trump's perspective was fairly captured in the commission's findings, so he wasn't willing to say what Trump's involvement or culpability was in January 6th. A line that he testified to that really stuck with me was when Congressman Buck, he's a former prosecutor himself, he gets up there and says the January 6th report, that was political. It was not an invested proper investigation. It isn't purely a search for the truth. It is a political exercise that is being engaged in to create uh, information for elections. That's, that's what the political system is about. been talking about one big task for the plaintiffs here in this case is to convince the judge that what happened on January 6th was an insurrection, the kind that Congress imagined when Congress wrote the 14th Amendment. But the other thing they have to do to make their case is argue that Trump himself was part of that insurrection. One legal expert that I spoke to describing the way he sees the case playing out is the plaintiffs trying to put the former president somewhere between the county commissioner who actually stormed the Capitol on that day and Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, whose 14th Amendment complaint was thrown out because she was kind of rooting it on from afar, but she wasn't any more involved than that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an interesting point because Trump didn't walk to the Capitol, didn't go into the Capitol. And so a lot of this has been on what was his language, his messaging leading up to that day. And for plaintiffs, their main witness for this argument was an expert on far right extremism. He's a sociology professor, Peter Simi from Chapman University. And he said Trump's language, not just that day, but months leading up to it, fit in with the way far-right extremist groups talk about the country and the future of the country. It represents the worldview in terms of seeing these imminent threats, these existential threats, deeply tied to the idea of the stolen election, but also more broad than that, that, that you know, basically our, our country is on the verge of being completely taken away from us. 
And that's when we saw a lot of references to tweets that the former president had sent out using words like fighting and the plaintiffs trying to make the argument that when a normal person hears a word like that, they assume that it's a metaphor. But when some of Trump's most ardent supporters hear words like fight, they take it very literal. So it's a message that is being translated one way for a broad audience, but then being heard very specifically by a very narrow audience. Yeah, that's right. And then Professor Simi also talked about a word like 1776 that's kind of almost coded. So if you're part of a far-right extremist group, you're going to hear that word and take a different meaning from it than you or I would. This argument about Trump's language goes to one of the main arguments his defense made, though. And that was just like, look, this is typical political speech. It's protected by the First Amendment. And in fact, Trump's attorneys played a bunch of clips, like a montage of Democrats using similar language about fighting that Trump used. One of Trump's lawyers, Scott Gessler, the former Republican Secretary of State for Colorado, he almost took a mocking tone at one point where he professed to be very conservative himself, but he only heard the kind of the plain everyday language in the president's statements, whereas only the sociologist and people on the far, far right, further right than the former Secretary of State is, hear the true meaning of what the president was trying to say. And the judge even seemed a little skeptical of this whole idea that Trump's speech was a loaded call to violence. And she noted that all of these arguments from plaintiffs are being made in the wake of January 6th, after everything happened. Is it your testimony that if you had watched that speech and nothing had happened, that you would have the same view? I mean, I guess... What worries me with all of this is it's all kind of in 2020 hindsight, you know, you know what happened. However, the plaintiffs, they didn't try to argue that their case is only about what Trump said in that moment of, on January 6th or in the months leading up to it. They tried to tie together what he did and didn't do as the mob was storming the Capitol as evidence that he was part of the quote unquote insurrection. Yeah, that was another key part of their argument. Are you aiding the insurrection by not stopping, they argued, the violence sooner? So we did hear from experts about what the president's executive powers were, National Guard troops, who was where, and everything that went along with that in terms of why there was such a slow response that day. Almost arguing that his not acting was acting in favor of overthrowing the election. Recapping what we've discussed here, on one side of this case, you have this effort to keep Trump off the ballot, arguing that his words before January 6th and his lack of action during the violence that day make him complicit in an insurrection and ineligible to hold office again. As we record this episode, the two sides have made their arguments, and we're waiting to see what the judge will decide. No matter what the judge decides, I think it's safe to say that the outcome will probably be appealed. I know some of the groundwork has been laid already to potentially fast track this all the way up to at least the state Supreme Court. And of course, something of such national interest and people are going to start voting in caucuses and elections very soon uh, to determine who the next Republican nominee is. So it could potentially be snatched up by the U.S. Supreme Court, too. I think that's the goal of supporters of this lawsuit to get the U.S. Supreme Court to make a decision and set a precedent that other states would have to follow. Which, if other cases have been any indication, it could be a tough road for Trump's opponents. A similar case in Minnesota was just struck down by that state's highest court. 
What's interesting about that is, yes, the Minnesota Supreme Court dismissed the lawsuit, but they didn't touch on the underlying legal case about whether it was an insurrection, whether President Trump engaged in an insurrection. Instead, the Minnesota Supreme Court said, look, parties can put anyone they want on the ballot, essentially, and that if you really want to challenge this, you have to wait till if he ends up being the general election candidate. So if Colorado's case keeps moving forward, this will be one of the first times that a judge rules on the underlying merits of the case. Well, not to go to Civics 101. But... Wait, but Nick, this is purplish. So if people are still listening to the episode, I'm hoping they're totally fine with Civics 101. Oh, and then they're my people too. <laughs> but in this country, our president isn't elected in a single election. They're chosen through 51 individual elections, the 50 states and the District of Columbia. So what happens in Minnesota doesn't necessarily predicate what happens in Colorado. And as long as we're talking about Civil War era events, it's important to remember that presidential candidates haven't always appeared on every single ballot in every single state. And you know how legal cases sometimes draw out for weeks, months, years? That will not happen with this case because there is an ironclad deadline. Colorado's primary ballots have to be certified by January 5th, 2024. So everything that's happening right now is sort of rushing toward that end date. So this lawsuit is unfolding in the court system. Lots of nuance, interesting legal facts. But of course, it's so much more than just a set of legal arguments. I really want to end this episode by talking about what this case means outside of the courtroom. Because whatever the courts decide on this 14th Amendment question, there's a much bigger question here. Should the courts decide at all who gets to be on the presidential ballot in a situation like this? And that's really the existential question at the heart of this lawsuit. As a self-governing people, like who determines the candidates that we get to choose for our highest office? The state Republican Party, they joined this lawsuit as an intervener, essentially making that argument that if people don't think somebody is qualified for the White House, they have a very direct way of saying no to that, whether it's in the primary election that's going to be happening in the spring or it's in the general election that's going to be happening in November. Kind of an interesting flip of the plaintiffs in the case who are arguing that having a disqualified candidate is robbing them of their voice and the candidates they prefer having a better shot at making it through the electoral jungle that we have. And we've talked about the stakes being so high because this is not just any race. It's the presidential race. It's not just any candidate. It's a former president who is likely to be the GOP nominee for president. The judge even said this. There's such strong feelings on all sides of this issue. And I've been out and about recently on the Eastern Plains and in Castle Rock, and I talked to Trump supporters and Republicans. And this whole idea that Democrats are behind a group that's gone to court to keep Trump off the ballot just infuriates them. And that's just unbelievably ridiculous. They can't do that. I mean, I don't know what's happened to my state. <laughs> I'll write his name in, even if he's not on the ballot. I think a lot of people here will, because what they're doing is wrong. I think that speaks to the level of support that the former president has, particularly in some of the conservative parts of the state, you know, and folks feeling like, yeah, they're besieged on having their candidate taken away from them. But on the flip side, for folks who maybe aren't as ardent in their support or their politics, the case could also have the result of just having the word Trump and insurrection next to each other a lot heading into what's sure to be, again, another contentious close election. 
right, regardless of the success of this lawsuit, is that a political strategy? And certainly when you talk to Trump's campaign, they made that pitch even before the hearing started just outside the courtroom. We heard from Jason Miller with the Trump campaign. Joe Biden, the Democrats have made the determination they cannot beat President Donald J. Trump at the ballot box. So we're here with a courtroom behind us because they're trying to put up their steel curtain around Colorado. And when I say steel curtain, that's S-T-E-A-L. Democrats are trying to steal this race. This is un-American. This is election interference. Everybody sees what's going on. To that point, we also asked them about the implication that the plaintiffs are current and former Republicans, some of them quite prominent. And the campaign's response was to call them rhinos, the disparaging term for quote-unquote Republicans in name only. I don't know if intrapartisanship war is a phrase, but uh, <laughs> it kind of indicates that. But there are even some Democrats who don't think this is the best strategy that it really should just be settled at the ballot. In the grand scheme of how divided our country is, I don't know whether that's the right way to go forward. That's State Representative Chris Degree Kennedy. There's a subset of the electorate that's going to feel really aggrieved. The best way to win in a political environment is by persuading the voters that you're right. On the other side of that, the argument that it's bad for democracy to give people choices, candidates that aren't constitutionally able to hold the office. If somebody is under 35, but everybody thinks they're a good president, does that mean they should be able to run? Yeah, I mean, advocates will say, look, that this isn't the type of behavior that you can ignore. You can't ignore what Trump did. And there's a cost to democracy when people aren't prosecuted for something like this. It's counter to the U.S. Constitution and the 14th Amendment. And to circle back to the constitutional scholar who studied the 14th Amendment, he also raised the point that invoking it isn't necessarily a punishment. It's just a disqualification clause. I don't know if you got this sense, Nick, but when I was talking to other reporters and even other people in the legal profession, I think we all agreed that I wouldn't want to be the judge in this case. You know, this is a very, very difficult decision to make. It will probably be part of the historic record. And... Who knows how this will turn out, but I think she has a very tough task. Why I'm glad I never went to law school. That's it for this episode. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. I'm Benta Berkland with Nick Coltrane from the Denver Post. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a blast. This episode was produced by Shane Rumsey and edited by Megan Verlee. We'll be back in your podcast feed sometime soon. So if you're not already a subscriber, be sure to sign up to make sure you don't miss it. And if you're enjoying Purplish, please recommend us to your friends. This is Purplish from CPR News.